Good evening, Colin. Hi there, Mark. Lovely to have you with us. And, uh, well, first up, we're going to look at this uh, sudden and extremely shocking violence across the Gaza and Israel border. And it certainly dominated the news, rightly so, this week. Yes, of course, all, all around the world. That's been uh, the headline news. Oh, and almost immediately, I think, it became a really fraught issue for the media to cover, not just in terms of the commentary and analysis and all that stuff, but just the, the straight-out news reporting of what had happened. Um, you know, some people insist that those Hamas attacks are must be described as or even condemned as terrorism uh, rather than just surprise attacks or uh, raids, um, that sort of terminology. Some of those who who would even say, well, okay, fair enough to describe it as ter- terrorism because self-evidently that's what those attacks uh, looked like, um, you know, also insist that there should be context about Israel's occupation, the history, uh, settlements nearby and and all of that. So, yeah, where people's, um, I guess, points of view about uh, and, and allegiances on, you know, the, the history of that part of the world and what's happened aren't represented in just the basic vocab of news stories, you know, mm-hmm. they get hotly disputed. There's also another problem with this that you can see and even just some of the standard uh, if I can put it that way, the, the news reports, that the Israel government, the IDF uh, Defence Force spokespeople in Israel, clearly they speak for the country when uh, they're communicating with the media. But for Palestinian pundits and representatives, um, when they're being interviewed, it's more complicated. Often they're not allies or spokespeople of, of Hamas, uh, or, or at least you know they, they say they're not. For example, um, there was an awkward interview on uh, BBC uh, World News where um, Mustafa Baghouti of the Palestinian National Institute, which is not a group um, aligned with Hamas, you know, have, has, was put on the spot being asked to condemn or or uh, explain the actions of Hamas. And he says, look, I'm, I'm not a spokesperson for them. So that, that gets really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, so when the media don't use the language that people with strong views on this conflict uh, and its history um, uh, that they agree with, Here's, a, here's an example of it, actually. This is from the state. So this is the leader of the pro-Israel group uh, Anti-Defamation League uh, in based in New York. This is Jonathan Greenblatt. He went on uh, MSNBC's morning show in the U.S. and criticized that network's coverage. I am angry with the world that allowed the dehumanization of Israelis and sanitized the terrorism of Hamas. I must say, I love this show and I love this network. But I've got to ask, who is writing the scripts? Hamas, the people who did this, they are not fighters, Jonathan. They are not militants. And I'm looking right at the camera. They are terrorists. Yeah, and after that, he really did. Uh, Mr. Greenblatt looked straight down the camera, spoke directly to viewers at some length. He talked about uh, the barbarism of Hamas, ran through some of the worst atrocities that were being reported back at that point, that was within 24 hours of the attacks beginning. And the host just, just let him speak. It wasn't you know, great news broadcasting, to be honest. And you know he wasn't specific about what it was with NBC's uh, reporting that he thought was, you know, pro-Hamas or in his words there, mm. you know, has Hamas written your scripts? And, you know, that that's sort of, it's not very helpful for the viewers. And again, during that minor party leaders debate, which we'll talk about uh, in a bit, that was hosted by the press uh, this week for our election campaign, the leaders were all pressed by uh, journalists both during the debate and afterwards, you know, was Hamas a terrorist organisation? Was what they did terrorism? If so, what about the actions of the Israeli Defence Force? I don't, I don't think it's terribly helpful to try and 
you know, pin people down and get them to use one yes. set of vocabulary or, or another. So you can get a soundbite, yeah. Have the, uh, the basic facts of what happened been reported clearly, though, in your opinion? I mean, the Ukraine-Russian war was and has generated a, a lot of misinformation and a lot of disputed claims, hasn't it? Yes, that's a comparison, actually, that I think quite a few in the media have, have been looking to. I mean, it's early days, of course, in this, um, uh, after the Hamas uh, attacks. So, I mean, initially, a lot of the images that were seen were provided by Hamas themselves, you know, digital video and so on of, of the um, the hostage taking uh, that we'd use widely in, in news reports. So this is effectively a form of propaganda, uh, this, this sort of images they're taking during um, the raids, um, but also, and of course, um, people who were the victims of them were taking, taking video as well, some of that ending up mm. on social media in the news. That does provide some pretty clear evidence of what happened. Um, but things like casualty estimates and figures impossible to verify, especially now um, after the, the strikes on Gaza uh, itself. We've all seen those buildings uh, mm. coming down. We know how densely populated it is. You know, it's just impossible to know. The New York Times had a, quite an interesting report on this, looking at accounts on uh, Twitter, now known as X. Um, said there were a lot of accounts they found sharing images of, of dead people. Uh, claiming to be Israeli civilians killed in the 24 hours of fighting. The Times said some of these accounts appeared to be manipulated and edited. But underneath that, um, people were pointing out that under videos and images that were posted there, people were warning, look, this is possibly part of a campaign to actually spread and stoke fear among Israelis because, you know, this is, of course, still mm -hmm. ongoing. Uh, the New York Times said some of these accounts claim to be working on behalf of Hamas itself. So people have to be really careful. And that platform, Twitter X, under the guardianship of Elon Musk, mm -hmm. is not, uh, it's got much worse at moderating content. They've removed a lot of the teams they had doing it. In fact, the EU has now got in contact with Musk saying, look, a lot of what is being posted there is simply illegal under the terms of new EU legislation on, on digital content. Um, I think he's written back to them saying, well, tell me what you don't like and let the public see, be transparent. But that's really not the point. The point is that this stuff is going up on that particular platform unmoderated and uh, yeah, it needs much more closer use, I think, before it goes out uh, on, a, on a public platform. Mm. Uh, but there's, there's, the BBC's got some sort of fat checking service, is it not? Yeah, it has an effect on some of the BBC's reports. You can see the logo Verify on the top. Right. So they've got a team of people that look at some of this stuff and, and check it out. But even they've been um, criticised because they even use satellite images. So looking down, you can pinpoint where fires are and known landmarks because it's a relatively small area, uh, Gaza and the surroundings, and, and we're able to map you know, the spread and the speed of, of the attacks. But um, they also were criticised. They used some, I think, Amazon facial recognition software and right. identified some individuals, and they published some pictures of... Uh, gunmen taking part in these these Hamas attacks and identified one, for example, as I believed uh, to be a member of the Gaza police force, saying that his uh, his facial features matched up. And other people looked at this and said, BBC shouldn't really be doing this, identifying individuals, you know, what if they get it wrong? So, yeah, it's it's an awkward area, mm. but, it's, you know, what's the alternative? This stuff is circulating largely unmoderated on social media and any effort, I guess, to make sense of what people might be seeing and sharing uh, is better. But, um, yeah, I, I think this is where high-quality news organisations uh, with staff, with resources and with experience of reporting mm -hmm. things like this can actually well, be much better sources 
for reliable info than trying to pick and choose stuff uh, from sources online. Well, we're three sleeps away from the election, uh, Colin. <laughs> Goodness knows. It's been an interesting uh, ride, hasn't it? I mean, a fortnight ago, even a week ago, it was looking like a you know, national act all the way. And then suddenly, it seems like the wheels have, have come off a bit. Um, you know, the, the polls tonight show a changing picture, even up to the sort of the, the, the 11th hour, if you like. Mm, interesting that uh, TVNZ and... News Hub both tonight uh, doing their final um, public opinion polls before the election. So TVNZ, as, as you were saying there, seemed to think the picture was changing. Uh, their polls introduced with uh, the result will be tighter than many had forecast, mm-hmm. they said. And their poll, interestingly, was taken Saturday to Tuesday, whereas the News Hub one, with slightly different results but a similar trend, was from Thursday the 5th through to uh, Tuesday mm-hmm. yesterday. And, uh, yeah, News Hub... Uh, spoke of nationals voters crashing uh and uh this but you know i, I don't like that i'm i can be a bit boring about this mark we've spoken mm. about it before they t- the nationals voted no one's you know some people have voted but the vote's not in it's support yeah. they're talking about not the vote but you know maybe i'm splitting hairs but i do i do feel that and uh they definitely regard this as a big fall but that was their poll i think almost 5.4 for mm. national just in their poll there are other polls which are a little closer including the TVNZ one, which came out simultaneously. Interestingly, uh, News Hub also claimed a bit of credit for saying we revealed uh, National's overselling of its tax policy and the fact that only uh, 3,000 odd households would get the benefit of the advertised 250 or up to $250 tax cuts. Of course, that was the work of the Council of Trade Unions, but uh, News Hub took a bit of the credit for that. So, yeah, the Herald reporting. Um, the News Hub poll uh, said, you know, Nats support crumbles. And I think that's overstating it as well. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, a 5% full poll on poll, but the trend is still there, and they certainly have a bedrock of support that's higher than any other party. Um, mm-hmm. So crumbles, I think, is um, overstating it. But oh, I do, I should give credit, though, to TVNZ's political editor, Jessica Much Mackay, because she did point out, as she tends to do after all of their polls, still 9% in that poll undecided and this is mm-hmm. at a point where the voting has opened usually it comes down faster had been 12-13% in previous months so yeah the, she would have expected I think that that would come down so still a lot to play for in terms of that undecided yeah. vote and of course they've got one more leaders debate uh, to go on Thursday night Yes Now we didn't get the town hall uh press debate last week, of course, because of um, uh, Christopher Hipkins coming down with the COVID and uh, Christopher Luxon not keen to go on, basically. That <laughs> turned into a mitre, minor party leaders debate last night. Uh, but there was also one held by uh, the stable mate, The Post, in Wellington uh, between the two finance spokespeople. Um, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, interesting, because possibly that would be the least watched of you know the the debates mm. to come, including the one uh, that's coming up on Thursday night. But it was interesting. So um, this was uh, Grant Robertson for Labour, Nicola Willis for National. And I must say, you know, stuff of course isn't a TV broadcaster naturally, but this was live streamed and full in pretty mm. decent quality video. And you know, because they're not. A specialist broadcaster, you expect a few rough edges, but you know a couple of dropouts with the sound, but otherwise really high quality production. Uh, mm. Not the first time they've done it, so it might um, sound like a, I'm damning with faint praise on it, but I am quite impressed with the way that they can get a fairly sophisticated production, lots of 
camera angles, you mm. know, an analysis panel off to the side as well as the main stage and an audience. And it was done pretty well. But um, I guess I'm picking on the details here. Anyone who tuned in on time uh, would have had just a, a still image while they were getting everything together. And they had to endure um, several loops of a kind of a backing background music, um, hype music, as we call it. And it seemed to me to be what the National Party might call a pretty legal rendition of um, Led Zeppelin's Kashmir. And uh, when the debate did finally kick off a few minutes, um, late uh, host Andrea Vance, the political correspondent, acknowledged that uh, once they got it going. National Affairs Editor Andrea Vance and Stuff Political Editor Luke Malpass. Tenakoto Kautoa, good evening and a very warm welcome to the post-finance debate. I bet you're all glad that music stopped now. Oh, yeah. Well, these two have had uh, a few clashes in the campaign so far, Nicola Willis and Grant Robertson. Was it a feisty affair? Uh, it was, um, but uh, Stuff's own Kevin Norkey reviewing it afterwards said, a debate, was it? Oh, if constant gainsaying and whataboutism counts as a debate, then I guess the finance debate delivered in truckloads. But if you came with the expectation of a debate that led to a, a, a glowing economic vision for the future of God's own, probably a case of yeah, nah according to Kevin. Uh, but these two have clashed several times. There was a debate in Queenstown a couple of weeks back, or maybe a bit more than that. And they, they also appeared on the Q&A show and had a good old uh, ding-dong on TV1 um, and TVNZ Plus uh, just the weekend before, I think. So at one point, Grant Robertson did say to Nicola Willis directly, uh, it, it's, a, it's a happy, lovely road show we've been having together. Uh, and she kind of <laughs> smiled. But they really do give it a go when, when they speak uh, to each other. This one was also in front of a live audience, and that changes the vibe a little bit. But one thing was they were just getting going, um, maybe about 20 minutes in, when they called a halt and had a panel discussion uh, with with the experts, which mm. seemed, you know, I guess they did need a break because this did go on for more than an hour and a half. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the analysis panel is, of course, actually a good idea because they could say any number of things in these debates and to have an expert or two, like they had economist Cameron Bagri on hand, for example, to pull them up uh, when they're um, being economical with the truth or a bit mm-hmm. misleading is a good thing. But one of the other um, interesting panellists was uh, former Labour leader David Cunliffe, who'd also be on uh, pundit duties for TVNZ in the first uh, head-to-head leaders debate. He had this interesting opinion during that um, break in the finance uh, leaders debate. Labour bled probably 4 to 5% of votes to its left after gutting its tax plan. And uh, I think the polling was around swinging centre voters, which are always the prize, but they're not the only voters out there. I think it's left a lot of uh, thinking voters wondering who the heck is actually going to drive transformation? Mm. So that's a reflection on policies the public can't vote for or can't <laughs> vote against. Um, did the respective economic policies on offer get a good airing? I mean, even if the debate was uh, somewhat interrupted? Yeah, they did, because after that, they did let them go for most of the, the rest of the hour. So a lot of things, just to pick out one example, it was a bit about the lack of progress on really major and costly infrastructure, including um, kind of wrapped into that, you know, the whole Three Waters plan. You know, we know what happened in Queenstown and the Southern Lakes uh, recently and yep. this urgency of getting water treatment and um, 
water pipes all fixed. So all that sort of stuff was. So there was a lot of the, the gainsaying, the over-talking that we, we come to expect between those two because they don't want to give uh, ground to their opponent and it is a debate and that happens. But they gave it enough time um, and without television commercials, as you know, often mm. get in the TV debates, uh, to actually have, have a good go. So I do recommend if, if people are interested, uh, seek it out. Um, you know, it's uh, it's like a TV program. You can get the video up, sit back, and uh, mm. if you're of a mind too, you, you can hear some interesting discussion about a range of, of economic issues between those two are pretty practiced at confronting each other now. Mm, mm, mm. Now, the next night, of course, was the press's minor parties uh, leaders' uh, power brokers debate at the Christchurch Town Hall. Now, in the previous TV debates, there was a lot of focus on whether New Zealand First and Act leaders would get along. Was it the same case this time? No. No, not at all. They were much more restrained and even polite to each other, um, albeit, uh, you know, not agreeing with too much of what the other party said, but certainly not. I think they looked at those other two um, debates. And yes, you're right to correct me there, power brokers debate. Who who wouldn't want to be a power broker rather than a minor party leader? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, yeah, quite right there. So the but given that the polling has pointed to, you know, particularly Act the New Zealand First being critical to the election outcome. Maybe it's no bad thing that we did get another look at them rather than another Chris Hipkins, uh, Chris Luxon. You know, we'll never know what might have come out. But there were very real differences on things like tax and how to solve the the cost of living, how to tackle it. And, yeah, Winston Peters, although he wasn't being full-bore combative and targeting David Seymour as he did in the other ones, he did dip into his little bag of rhetoric uh, for this response to the sort of tax the rich plan of Te Pāti Māori. We'd like to make these promises. I mean, you just heard a statement over there. I bet the Māori corporations are shivering in their boots when they heard that because they don't realise that there are people out there that are making money and for the advancement of this country and bringing money back to the family of New Zealand. And they're going to attack them all with a pinko communist type approach. This won't work. Woo! What are we, like 10 minutes in and we've got pinko out there already? Well, that's what it is. I mean, they've got a thousand ways to spend money and not one way of making it. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there was also a, a swing at the Greens uh, taxation plans as well, I should point out. But Tove O'Brien got very excited there when he wheeled out that <laughs> that bit of rhetoric. I think, you know, I think she wanted a bit more action, but um, but yes, yeah, there, there wasn't a whole lot of that. that it was yeah. relatively restrained, and all of them were, were trying to present more moderate faces than perhaps they had in previous debates. It, it really picked up in the second half, but a lot of it, it was interesting because, as has been pointed out in the previous power brokers, Stroke minor party leaders. Yes, debates. Yes. Uh, they all fuck up upper Māori, uh, all four leaders, which yeah. is, and so that Māori issues came up a lot. There was a lot about uh, Te Reo um, as well. Uh, so, yeah, that might have frustrated some people who, you know, w- wanted, you know, the, the major issues, if I can put it like that, of, of you know, tax, health, education, all that discussed a bit more. But mm. it certainly gives it a different flavour. And um, Tova O'Brien kind of fell into a bit of a trap with Winston Peters. I think she meant her almost last question. I think she was trying to get it in before the end because they were overrunning, did raise the question, should we have age limits for politicians? And that, of course, immediately (laughs) put uh, a power broker, Mr... Winston Peters uh, onto the high moral ground, you know, criticising the ageism of, of this sort of issue. It is a fair enough question to raise, I suppose, and one he should be able to address. But the way it was done did seem um, a bit last minute and gratuitous and uh, yeah, did, did give him the opportunity to uh, mount the high horse. Possibly needs to be raised in the United States more than here. Well, that's probably what's on people's minds because, yeah, yeah I mean, looking at that, you'll have yeah, possibly two... 
uh, men of advanced years, um, you know, that issue will certainly come up for sure. The other interesting thing is, you know, no wonder they were in good behaviour, Winston and David, because I'm sure that has been part of the counter productive side of uh, it all people have seen them going at each other and thinking my god this is going to be instability full stop you know can they even work in the be in the same room mm-hmm. um, and that that would not help their cause either of their causes I would have thought people no and it also pl- plays into narratives the media are running in fact News Hub with its poll result mm-hmm. tonight did say you know National sliding back into their own I've forgotten the words Jenna Lynch used but it was something mm-hmm. like a coalition of chaos of their own making mm-hmm. of course that's the opposition uh, the sorry the government line, isn't it? The, yes. the, the coalition of chaos, that's the line they want to get out there. So I'd be delighted to hear a yes. political editor of a, a, a 6pm on a 6pm news bulletin using their chosen language and uh, and uh, with that interpretation of what's happened to uh, the National Party with the polling results. Now who did the analysis during that debate, the Tova uh, debate? Yeah, the, this was interesting. One of them was uh, Sir Ian Taylor, um, you know, known innovator uh, yeah. and so on. But he... He really took it over. Like in the first break, Tracy Watkins, the Sunday Star Times and Post editor, was was corralling this panel. But he was introduced first. He kind of took it over. He talked, almost delivered a lecture to the camera. You would have thought he was a candidate. He was saying, GDP, Ireland's got double the GDP. You know, we have now. It used to be half. Oh, it used to be um, about the same size. You know, back in 1990, he went on a bit of a ramble about this. Um, and, you know, he also talked about other countries outperforming us, you know, he, but he referenced things like Finland. And I mean, Ireland has a big GDP, I believe. A lot of that is to do with all the multinationals that have been mm. based there over the recent years. And whether that really translates into wealth, you know, GDP per head, I'm not really sure. Finland, I looked it up, doesn't appear to be leave, leaving us in the dust, does have more GDP than us. But Finland has a huge welfare state. Mm. Uh, and, you know, they've their government picked winners and companies like Nokia and all of that. So it was a bit of a national. I didn't think the comparisons were great. And uh, it was a bit untidy. It was a bit like a yeah, kind of treatise from Sir Ian. And um, they did have another guest there from University of Canterbury. They introduced him once, but didn't mention his name again. He was oh. quite good. I'm afraid I literally don't know who he is. But he pointed out to Ian Taylor uh, that... You know, Finland and Ireland, he said, have this sort of corporatist culture and have managed to get political parties on board with national projects. And, you know, that is not something we've seen a whole lot of in these election debates where it seems to be that parties want to criticise other parties' policies as a way of promoting their own. And, you know, maybe it'll be different when the election's over and we settle down and maybe we'll see a bit more uh, national planning and common ground. But, yeah, it didn't really come across in the debate. Mm. Now, you want to highlight some investigations into the minor parties in recent days, including some of the really minor parties yes. contesting the election. Yeah, the ones who probably aren't led by people who we could describe as power brokers. So <laughs> uh, the News Hub Nation show last Sunday did a brief roundup of what they called marginal parties. Um, it was titled, Who Are They and Why Do They Bother? And this was the conclusion uh, they reached on Sunday. In the most recent News Hub Read research poll, all the small parties that respondents mentioned added together totaled 1.1%. The new Conservatives did better, polling 1.1% by themselves. That's no chance of getting into Parliament and a far cry from when Colin Craig led the Conservatives and attracted almost 4% in the 2014 election. Which makes them sound pretty irrelevant, really. But are the media missing something here, perhaps? Yeah, because that, that Colin Craig Conservatives Party often is regarded as the sort of high watermark of getting close to the threshold, but not making it. But it, yeah, it did, did make it sound like all these other parties were just a wasted vote, and um, 
uh, one, with one exception, all, all barely totaling more than 1% put together. But there were two pieces by stuff journalists over the weekend which gave me a different perspective on this. One came out in the weekend press, uh, Stuff's Charlie Mitchell. It was called How the Freedom Movement Found Its Man in Winston Peters. So in this, he detailed how, you know, there were political activists and lobbyists. Uh, you know, some had a background or an attachment to the sort of anti-vax uh, and occupation of parliament last year uh, and, you know, the so-called freedom movements as well, whatever tag you want to give it. And some notable political operatives like Glenn Inwood, um, Cameron Whale Oil Slater as well have, have sought to join and influence bigger political parties. And and they've been running a line that, you know, you don't have to you don't have to start a party or a movement. It's better to join one. Um and try and influence it. So uh, Charlie Mitchell in his article um, set out how in sort of mid-2022 there was a thing called the Democracy Project where some like-minded people tried to recruit people to join ACT uh, and hopefully you know, have influence on the party. Um, this wasn't a secret. It was talked about on the forum Reality Check Radio, which was set up by um, the Voices for Freedom mm-hmm. uh, group prominent in the Occupation Parliament and the anti-vax and anti-mandate Movements. There was um, a, an outfit called Resistance Kiwi, associated with um, Glenn Inwood that we mentioned before, and they, yeah, they they really were trying to mobilise this, but it didn't work. Act were not receptive to it, but a subsequent effort in Charlie's article details how it happened. Got members and indeed donors, backers of other freedom parties, to join New Zealand First instead, and that seems to have been more successful. And you know, as political commentators and journalists have been noting. That uh, after this, you know, New Zealand First and its leader and his speeches has adopted a fair few sort of these mm. pro-freedom principles and talking points. So during the local elections last year, candidates who had expressed those so-called conspiracy theory or anti-vax views were subject of a lot of stories. Mm. Uh, but is this sort of scrutiny been applied this time, this election, by the I, media? I don't think there has been the same focus. Um, there certainly have been a lot of stories about. Act and NZ first candidates whose you know fringe views were found when people went trawling through their social media feeds from times before they were candidates and members of parliament often, and they've been you know asked, do you still hold these views? And they've been reported as news. The anti-conspiracy theory group Fact um, has also been tracking some of these, looking at the social media accounts. Uh, you know, on some of the sort of non-mainstream platforms as well, where um, what they call entryism, uh, and in fact, mm. that's what Charlie Mitchell calls it too, this, this trying to enter the the parties uh, uh, and then influence mm. their policy making and candidate selection and so on. So Charlie Charlie's article was the first one I think that pulled this together and showed how he thought this had been done in a coordinated way to give New Zealand First a boost. And you know, as we can see from the reporting and the opinion polls and so on, this yeah, may just have an impact on, on the election outcome. Now, you did mention there were two t- stuff stories about this. Um, yeah. What was the other one? Yeah, the other one was um, Tony Wall, a veteran reporter in the Sunday Star-Times. His one was called Inside the Breakup of Democracy NZ uh, is a Mysterious shallow, Shadow Leader Pulling the Strings. And this was about Democracy NZ, which is the, um, in, in Tony Wall's words, conspiracy-friendly party led by the former Northland MP Matt King. Now, he quit the National Party over its support for vaccine mandates. And it suffered this sudden desertion of supporters and candidates uh, a few weeks back. And that was reported in brief in the news. I remember it at the time. Um, but then he's spoken to some of these, included uh, the, including its Waikato candidate, uh, who's raised concerns about the party and pointed towards a, 
uh, someone I'd never heard of, but Samantha Miranda, who described as a secretive private woman pulling the strings, uh, someone who has taken great uh, trouble to stay out of the limelight, not to be mentioned. In fact, Tony Wall writes about phoning her up, just trying to establish what is your role in the party, what do you do, and just not being able to get any straight answers at all. So interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, at the local elections last year, stuff was criticised for signalling out uh, the parties and candidates and highlighting fringe views. All of them are entitled to join parties and mm. they can all stand as candidates as they wish uh, within the rules, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some people did say, well, why, you know, this is a judgment by you stuff, you know, sending your journalists out to uh, pick through the social media accounts of these people and and force them to explain it and they've got a right to be candidates. But I think the point would be, you know, that people are entitled to know what issues and agendas campaigners might have and that's legitimate to report, especially if they might end up uh, as candidates with, you know, a decent chance of becoming an MP in Parliament, you know. Mm. So I think it's legitimate. Mm-hmm. Now, earlier this year on uh, Midweek Media Watch, Hayden talked about a run-in between former radio host Rachel Smalley and Farmac, and that has been back in the news this week. Uh, calls for the Farmac boss to quit. Tell us a story, Colin. <laughs> yeah, briefly. So uh, today, FM, when that was still a going concern, clashed with Farmac over this. Uh, the, the agency was making, it was big news for them, a cystic fibrosis uh, drug called Trikafta, that they were going to fund it. And Rachel Smalley, that has a special interest in um, medicines and Pharmac, she knew about this, and today FM broke the news on a Friday. Pharmac wanted to hold it back. Uh, They'd arranged to do so, in fact, with News Hub. Uh, And even to the point um, where uh, some of the patient lobby groups weren't aware that this news was coming up. So Rachel Smalley OIA'd some correspondence from Pharmac's chief executive at the time, that's Sarah Fitt, and she said this on her show, I think this was back in March this year. Now, I take no satisfaction in what I'm about to say because what I want is for Pharmac to be a drug-buying agency that is patient-focused and committed to doing everything it can to get the very best treatments and medical devices for New Zealanders. But it's not that. Not even close. It is a brutal political beast. The needs of patients are neither its priority nor its concern. Wow, that's pretty uh, strong in its condemnation. Um, Is it fair? Well, that's her opinion and as her group, the Medicine Gap, that she founded does lobby for greater uh, drug funding and so on. Um, But it did show what she exposed was that Pharmax Top Brass was going to great lengths to engineer positive media coverage. Um, And, you know, even to the point, as I mentioned there, some group cystic fibrosis nz and patients were still in the dark you know that really wasn't in the public interest to have it done that way mm-hmm. so that was months ago um, so why back in the news now yeah back in the news because she also made a privacy act request seeking all communications with or about rachel smalley and journalists do this more these days they ask for uh, the communications about the handling of media requests and that brought to light a bunch of emails where sarah fit and a senior pr person and some other senior Pharmac top brass were pretty disrespectful and dismissive of Rachel Smalley mm-hmm. in their responses to her request. Uh, and yeah, some of them are a little bit embarrassing. And uh, one said, look, at the time, uh, the, the senior PR communications advisor said, I don't actually consider Rachel Smalley an activist, uh, a, a journalist. I consider her an activist. And um, yeah, then they made derisive comments about her low level of Twitter followers uh, and uh, the fact she didn't have a very charitable time slot she was on early morning in Today FM. So not stuff you'd want to go out and publish.